G'day and welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday, 20th of June, 1946. And if you woke up in Sydney, Australia this morning, you would have been checking to make sure there was plenty of wood in the fuel stove and putting on the dressing gown and slippers. The front page of the Sydney Morning Herald this morning announces roads blocked by snow in the south freeze over the whole state of New South Wales. A cold snap over the whole state yesterday was accompanied in many centres by the heaviest snow for years. The heaviest fall of snow in 30 years has blocked the King's Highway on Browns Mountain, 32 miles west of Bega, cutting off the tablelands from the coast between Nimitabel and Bega. Cooma is isolated and train traffic has been delayed by snow on the lines. Sydney registered its lowest temperature this year and Bunurong Powerhouse was unable to handle the heavy loads imposed on it. Power failures occurred in some suburbs. Heavy rain was reported from a number of towns. But for all that, the city forecast is for cool, cloudy with some showers, moderate southerly winds and slight seas. In a moment when we hear more from Betty we'll realise that the weather conditions are very different in Nanchang, Changxi. But before we hear from Bet, here's a little more from the history of UNRWA. You'll recall from previous episodes that one of the great success stories of the UNRWA program was that widespread epidemics were prevented. Continuing with that theme, Chapter 14, Malaria Controlled. Another UNRWA campaign reduced malaria, Greece's greatest debilitator, to its lowest incidence in modern history. The weapons used were 10 aeroplanes which swooped low over malarial mosquito breeding grounds, emitting a fog of DDT, and hand sprays which, village by village, spread a DDT solution over the walls of outhouses and homes. The method was simple, low in cost, and the results it produced were just short of miraculous. In Italy, UNRWA sanitary engineers directed a hand spray attack which, by itself, reduced the number of malaria cases in the provinces in which it was tried. UNRWA's experience in Greece and Italy seems to prove that, at long last, it has become both practical and economical to control the ancient scourge of malaria on a nationwide scale. Other epidemic diseases spurted up in invaded countries but never got out of hand. UNRWA flew remedial drugs and equipment into trouble spots as they appeared. The absence of influenza in its virulent form was a stroke of luck because medical scientists say, frankly, that if flu of the virulence and velocity of the 1919 culprit had got a toehold anywhere, it would have been hard to stop. On the other side of the world, in China, where cholera is endemic and expands every spring and summer, an epidemic developed in 1946. Control supplies were rushed by air from Dayton, Ohio, across the Pacific to Shanghai. The wave was broken earlier than expected and many lives were saved. 
UNRWA continued to amass supplies in anticipation of cholera's 1947 appearance and to direct preventative measures. It likewise stepped up its shipments of the raw materials and equipment to manufacture anti-cholera products. The disease never got out of hand in China in 1947, and when the serious cholera epidemic broke out in Egypt in the fall, threatening that country and surrounding lands, the Chinese government was able to offer many tonnes of cholera vaccine made with UNRWA equipment to the stricken Mediterranean area. The medical supplies and their expert use were not the only factors in epidemic control. The Epidemiological Information Network was also vastly important. This service is a sort of international weather bureau, whereby incipient epidemics can be spotted and charted like a hurricane, and health bureaus around the world notified. The epidemiological cables and bulletins contain official information transmitted under the International Sanitary Conventions for Maritime and Aerial Navigation. Before the war, the conventions were administered from Paris, but with the Nazi occupation, the work almost ceased. In January 1945, UNRWA, as the international health organisation to bridge the war-caused hiatus in health work, took over the administration of these conventions, brought them up to date, and issued reports and cables regularly. They were turned over to the Interim Commission of the World Health Organisation late in 1946. We'll resume the story of UNRWA in further episodes. But now let's leave a very freezing Sydney for a very hot Nanchang. Mrs Betty Souter, UNRWA, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, 20th of June 1946, written from Nanchang, Changsi. My dear Dad, in this letter I shall tell you how I eventually got back to Nanchang from Wuhu, and so complete the story of the latest venture. But I cannot resist saying how overwhelmed I was to get such a huge pile of mail on my return. It was just super, super and super, and made me extra happy and extra homesick all at once. But to get to the story, because there's so little space in these letters, I shall answer the letters later and separately. The four days of waiting at Woohoo was really quite tiring. They tried to make me welcome there, but I just seemed to have nothing in common with the girls. And the men, including Claude, my travelling companion, were billeted right on the other side of the town. However, I wrote letters and read and watched the river for transport. On the third day, I was disappointed to see an LST go right by. They couldn't understand our signals and did not pause even long enough for us to tear out the sampan and ask for a lift. However, on the fourth night at sundown, an LST anchored midstream for the night and Tony went out in a sampan to inquire the destination and whether they would take us to Kyu Chang. At 11pm, the boys picked me up in the jeep and down we went to the shore. We bargained with the sampan boy and set out against the current for the ship. It was the loveliest night I have seen here yet. Beautiful full moon, almost orange, masses of stars, 
and the surface calm river with a few small sailboats moving here and there. Claude and I enjoyed our little jaunt in the moonlight and were almost sorry that the trip across was no longer. Then up the rope ladder. And at midnight, I was on a hammock down in the bowels of the ship. This LST was taking a survey party of 18 persons, mainly doctors, and food supplies up to the one province that seems more stricken than the rest, Hunan. I understand that there are many deaths on the street daily from acute starvation. It was a pretty hot night, but I slept and woke at about 5.30, just as the anchor was coming up and we moved upstream. The passengers were a congenial lot, and we had a pleasant day sunbaking in the gun turrets and exchanging chatter. Most of the women were middle-aged Americans, but very charming, I thought. However, I found myself again, much to Claude's amusement, surrounded by the men most of the day. They reckon that they like the Aussie girls a lot, and they certainly do hang around. The day got hotter and hotter, however, and I was glad when the sun went down. Even then, it was still hot, and I did not venture down to my cot until about 1am. In the meantime, enjoying a little romancing on deck in the moonlight with three admirers. I definitely believe in having at least two at a time. Golly pop, but we do have fun. Next morning was wet and it rained all day until, fortunately, about 4pm. I was dubious about the skipper, who was very fearful of bandits, and said he could not come in too close to the town and that he could not stop the ship for us to get off. However, as soon as we sighted Kyu Chang, soon after four, we got the boy to megaphone for a sampan. One came across from the shore in due course and attached itself by a flimsy rope to the side of the moving ship. The rope ladder went down, then our kit bags, and then us. Believe me, I was not altogether happy about the situation, but got into the sampan all right amidst loud cheers from the friends on deck, and there we were again, Claude and I and our kit bags bucking about on the Yancey in a tiny sampan. We duly reached shore and had to walk a half a mile before we could get a rickshaw which took us to the mission. Incidentally, Claude is a very nice person to travel with. He's thoughtful and nice, a perfect gentleman and extra good company, although he is a lot quieter than most of the Americans I have met here. Everyone likes him. We got along very well together, but there is nothing romantic about it for the benefit of the girls. At Kuchang, we found a number of new personnel en route to Nanchang, and as they were travelling by weapons carrier the next morning, it suited us admirably, and we joined them. On the way back, the last 20 miles or so, I suddenly began to feel tired, and, on thinking it over, I believe I was justified. I sure was glad to see the hostel again, and... Tired and all as I was, I just leapt up those stairs when Marge said that my table was literally groaning under all my home mail. Honest to goodness, I needed it. Yours was one of the first I turned up, and I lapped up. You sent it by Wendy, who duly arrived. It is dated May 2nd. I'm sorry you are still so badly understaffed and having the absentee troubles too. You must sometimes long for the pre-war days when the Herald building ran so smoothly and happily. 
but don't overwork yourself too much, dear Daddy, because apart from anything else, and the obvious reasons, it makes me feel very guilty for running away. I do love to get the bits of office news. Gwenda has written me several very informative and amusing letters too, which I have enjoyed. Fancy Pat having a racehorse. Don't you get too enthusiastic about it? Just because Pat can run so fast, it's no reason why his horse should be able to run fast too. Let me know more in due course. You should have many letters by now explaining how I come to be out in the field. I think I should have convinced you at the same time that conditions, except for mail and communications, are ever so much better here than in Shanghai. The living, the atmosphere, the people, the office, the work are all much healthier and much better for one's state of mind. I made the right decision in coming out and I will keep in the field for as long as I'm here if I can and in different provinces if I can manage it. Don't want to end, but must. Have already answered most of your questions in previous letters. We'll write a special letter about UNRWA doings only, very shortly, and we'll be particularly interested to know if it gets through without interruption. Lots of love to the one and only Pop, Bet Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn. And a tune you might recognise and one which was far more relevant to Sydney today than it was to Nanchang, made it to number six on the popular music charts in 1946 by the Vaughan Munro Orchestra. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow.
I'll hate to go out in the storm. But if you really hold me tight, all the way home I'll be warm. The fire is slowly dying, and my dear, we're still goodbye. But as long as you love me so, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Let it snow, let it snow.